Welcome to Book Wandering with me, Anna James. I'm the author of the Pages & Co series and an arts journalist, and Book Wandering is the podcast where I talk to another writer about their most beloved children's or YA book. This episode, I spoke with Jay McGuinness. Jay is a member of the boy band The Wanted and previous winner of Strictly Come Dancing, but also the author of Blood Flowers, his debut YA novel, a dystopian fantasy about class, identity and first love. Blood Flowers is out in February and available to pre-order now. Jay's choice is David Edding's 1982 fantasy book, Porn of Prophecy, the first book in the Belgariad series. We chatted about what makes a book YA, how fantasy can be used to explore almost any idea or issue, and the similarities and differences between the publishing and music industries. You can find Bloodflowers and Porn of Prophecy on my case of books page at bookshop.org, which is linked below. And finally, before we get into the episode, just to quickly note that while the podcast is largely suitable for children, it isn't geared at younger listeners. <music> so welcome jay thank you so much for coming and being a guest on the podcast yay thank you for having me (laughs) so much um so uh we're going to talk a bit about your debut novel uh and one of your favorite books uh which is a book i hadn't actually come across before so to kick us off could you tell us about the book that you chose and how you first encountered it yes the book is called porn of prophecy it's by david eddings later in his life he um i guess admitted that his wife had actually been a key player and so they retroactively added her name to the books but my copy when i was a 10 year 10 year old boy was just david eddings and it was given to me by my dad and it was probably when i transitioned from reading uh, you know, kids' books and young adult fa- uh, fantasy into adult fantasy. It was my first uh-huh. adult fantasy. And it's, I mean, it's the start of a series that I went on to read every single book. And, oh, it's so good. <laughs> yeah, because it's really in that kind of tradition that almost doesn't fit easily into the kind of age groups that we, because it's a really kind of classic. It's yeah. not a children's book. It, it, as you say, it probably technically would be an adult book but it's one of those kind of classic coming of age stories it starts with him as a child and I must admit I've only read the first book but I assume he gets he sort of gets to proper adulthood over the course of the books yeah and I think that's one one thing that I absolutely adore is when you start off with a character as a child and you get to see them you know not just only become an adult but become an old adult and Uh it's like painful when you have to stop reading about those people but yeah uh, Garion the main the main little character he goes on to become so much more and see so many things um but yeah it all starts so small and he's a baby he's a baby on a farm on a farm yeah I love that you know and actually at times I'm not sure if you've read Earthsea at all because there was sort of that has that similar kind of he Ged starts as a child in the countryside and goes on to become an old man. And uh, actually, I should, if you enjoy, if these are, your, I'd really recommend Earthsea if you like these. I want all those recommendations. Okay. And like you said about how, even though it's technically an adult book, there's something about it where, despite the fact there does end up being like swords and what swords do, there's something that's sort of, and it's a little bit antiquated because it's like not very steamy it's just more like everyone's quite like high-minded and even though they've got little quips it's a little bit grandiose but it just feels like a fairy tale uh, yeah absolutely and I love that it just feels really mm-hmm. comforting to me and was it a book that you reread a lot as you grew up and is it a book you've come back to much as an adult yes and mm, slightly so I read it like a couple of times through the whole series so the the first series was 
uh, I think overall it's called The Belgariad, but the first five books, and then I read the second five, and then I did that maybe two or three times growing up. And I'd, I'd, and I'd also, you know, read other fantasy ones, but that was one I'd go back to when I didn't have anything to read. And then only, I, I think it was like probably like five, ten years ago, I moved and found my original old, re- you know, the pages are brown because it's that old. And I think my dad had it as a, as a kid, th- those right. copies of the book. So... I pulled out these crusty books and started reading through them then probably like five years ago. And weird, there was a difference. There was a, I felt a difference. Well, I was going to ask you about that because it is always interesting, isn't it? Coming back to books that we love as a child. And I did want to ask you kind of how you felt about them as, as an adult and as someone who was, start, I, I, well, I suppose the, pr- the pre-question to this is how did that align with your writing? Had you started writing were you always a writer? Because I also think coming back to books when you've written changes kind of how you see something. So, well, the only thing I've ever written before that was like a fiction, as opposed to like, like when I, in my band, I would write like a weekly like blog or weekly email, mail, mailing letter. And I always mm-hmm. like to just sort of fill that with as much personality as possible, just so the fans weren't like, boring marketing. <laughs> yeah. That was my only creative you know, outlet aside from music over the years, like literary wise. But as a, I remember as a kid, when we had like one computer in the house, I, I wrote like seven chapters of a fantasy novel. And one of my dad's mates is called Forbes. My dad's an electrician. I think Forbes is right. a builder or an electrician. And it was basically about Forbes. Go, it sounds quite dodgy, but he was going around the country in a white van because they all drive white vans. And he was picking up kids with magical powers. And <laughs> I mean, as a kid writing that, I thought this is the best idea ever. But yeah. <laughs> I don't know if Forbes would have liked me to have published that one. No, perhaps not. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I remember like it was over a summer and then the next summer I went back and read it and thought I'd finish it. And what I read, I was like, this is terrible. So I deleted it. And that was it. I never did anything again until last year. Yeah. So, okay, so let's, well, I'll, I'll come back to that. So then going back to you re-reading it as an adult. Yeah, I'd love to hear a bit about what kind of stayed precious, what you found yeah. different. So once, like, Obviously, as a 10-year-old boy reading about a roughly you know, 10, 13-year-old boy, I just felt like, wow, I'm in his shoes. I, my mum makes me wash the pots as well, you know, and he's in, <laughs> in, the, far, in the kitchen in the farm and his aunt Paul is making, making him do that. And I just thought like, yeah, you know, like no one pays me very much attention and I wash the pots, but one day I'll do amazing things. Um, and it, I really didn't care too much about um, what Paul, Aunt Paul or the, the wandering storyteller thought so much as much uh, what their internal worlds were more than right. how they could help Gary and enjoy his life and all that. Now, like I'm a prolific uncle. I've got like five, five nieces and nephews and uh-huh. like, I cannot tell you how much I care about them. Like they're the most fascinating, hilarious kids ever. And now I see my siblings and me being the uncles and aunties and there's a certain amount of like obsessed with them we are and a certain amount of completely ignore them and let them get on with their own little child <laughs> yeah. life. And now reading back, I just think all the times that like Gary Ann's trying to say something or reach out and he gets dismissed and it feels like quite, ooh, I think, yeah, I do, I do that to these little babies that I absolutely love. And I'm like, okay, go and play. I'm, I'm done interacting with you now. And it's weird to be on the other side of that, you know? Right. It's interesting, Gary Ann, isn't it? Because you sort of, uh, do you know what? We should pause here and actually talk a bit about the actual plot because I'm aware that even as a massive fantasy nerd, this wasn't something I had come across. So we should maybe do a kind of top level 
plot yes. summary in case other people haven't heard of it. So spoilers allowed. Yeah, I think I think how I tend to go is the book we're discussing that someone's favourites. We can go spoilers ahoy, um, but we obviously won't do too many spoilers. Well, we won't do any spoilers for Bloodflowers. Um, but yeah, do you want to kick us off with the kind of top level plot of Porn of Prophecy? So Garion is a young boy. He lives um, in Falder's farm and uh, he has no parents and he's raised by his awesome aunt Poll. She rules the kitchen with a, with a metal spoon and she points everyone this way, this, that way and the other. She's got a, a big swath of black hair with one white lock on her temple. How, can I swear? No. How rad is she? Oh no, you can swear. Go for it. Yeah, this is not for kids. <laughs> She's like Morticia Adams. But anyway, um, uh, the, the, the farm is like a contained like community of, of workers and you, every now and again you get wanderers coming in and out, scary people, interesting people. One is a storyteller and he tells the whole community about the, you know, f- uh, fables and myths and fictions and history of the, of the area through stories. And so, I mean, I won't go into f- the further, further books, but <laughs> I will give away some big pot details right now. You learn about Belgarath the wizard and you learn about his daughter Polgara and how, you know, powerful and renowned they were and how they were instrumental in wars and politics of the past. And you find out when, um, that Garion and a group of people have to go up on the run for something, that his, his aunt Paul is the world famous sorceress, Paul Garath. <laughs> and the, um, the older storyteller man that's entered the farm is the all powerful wizard, Belgarath, and he's come to get his daughter and transport them off on a magical quest. That's pretty much it. Yeah, that sets it up super well. Um, it's got some real sort of, it's a real classic old, and I don't mean old fashioned as an insult. I mean that in a good way. It's like what we were talking about before, the kind of style of it, a real kind of old fashioned fantasy epic coming of age story. Where it's all about transitioning from farm world into mysterious forests, into other kingdoms. And, and then the histories of people where there are like races, uh, some that are obviously the bad races, which is now a weird old trope, but these races that are like considered, you know, warmongers and it's scary and they do human sacrifices and all that sort of stuff that as a little farm boy, you just think like, wow, I'm going into the big, wide, dangerous world. It's just epic. It is. It's a real kind of journey book in the kind of Tolkien uh, style uh we keep getting distracted because I what I really want to know about is how you feel about it now. And I feel like oh. we're getting, I, I keep getting distracted by my fancy nerd heart basically and wanted to talk about maps and things, but we will get onto that. But I do want to make sure we cover <laughs> how you felt about it when you came back to it. So reading it back, I just felt like this like overwhelming sense of like family because mm-hmm. as, the, as the books go on, you spend so much time with this multi-generational family, Garion being the youngest and then Aunt Paul and then Belgarath being the oldest and coming back. And even though now, like some of it does sit a little bit in a semi-uncomfortable stereotypes of this is a bad nation, this is a good nation, all of that. Um, I just felt like I was returning to spend time with family that was really comforting. And I think that it was that it like a slight change in fantasy happened and I think that the adultness became a lot more like sexual in nature and like really pushing the boundaries of what sort of graphic sexual violence happened Mm -hmm. and this was just before that ever really happened and so you will get like horrible wars and people being stabbed and pushed off buildings and whatever throughout but it still retained a certain 
there's still a little veil of innocence I think that is just not a very modern way of looking at things that I just really enjoy right. yeah yeah um so I guess I'm really interested in how this book and how you know we've touched on some other fantasy stuff how it inspired you so I think now is probably a good time to just uh ask you to tell us a bit about Bloodflowers, your debut YA novel coming out in February. So could you just, it's hard to talk about, of course, because we do want to be more careful of spoilers, but could you tell us a bit about the kind of story in the world of Bloodflowers? I, I mean, I actually started when I began writing it purely with location because I just feel like I've always loved being transported to another place when I read. And that's why I read fantasy. And my hometown is called Newark on Trent. Some people might know it, but it's a small market town. It's got like a really big sugar beet factory and then, uh, you know, like a bunch of pubs and a really good train line to London. And I remember as a kid, like I never really went to London, but I remember being like, oh, we're going to Nottingham, like oh, big city. And I just always remember, you know, being quite scared going to Nottingham and like not knowing where all the public transport was and talking Uh about like things in London, like it was New York. Um, and that just has really stuck with me. And I think especially because like my family are really working class, but like I've like traveled and met so many people that I feel like a bit odd calling myself working class. Um, but I never will feel middle-class. And so I feel quite strongly about social issues and I feel like Uh fantasy is a really, um, soft, fun way of exploring those things. And so, yeah, I started with this town, Calliston, and you know how if you're from a small town, it's quite easy to feel trapped. I wanted there to be physical um, embodiments of that feeling. And so in the woods around the town at night, these creatures come out and they eat anything that moves, attack and consume their flesh. And so all the people retreat behind these walls, but in the day, they can free to run out into the fields and do all their farming. And there's a young boy called Bear, who is the main character of the of the book. And he lives in the lowest level of, of course he does, lowest level of the town called Cobbleside. Cobbleside is called Cobbleside because it's right on the cobbles. Right on the top, they've built up, because they've got these walls, they can only extend upwards. And so all the really, you know, prime spots are right on the roof. And they're the roofsiders. So Bear's living right on the bottom and he's going out into the fields and, and he's trying to basically um, cultivate his talents in growing this town's crop. So how Newark has a sugar beet factory, this town grows this magical red plant, which has, when it's brewed into like a tea, it has a really calming um, sort of semi-joyful effect, not too dissimilar to alcohol. So, but without all the sort of um, like sort of klutziness and like aggression and all that, it's really just a feel good thing. I think in those working class communities and like mine, mine was like an Irish style. Um, like it was like literally the Catholic club is like an Irish center where all the go and everyone was drinking. And as a kid, I was, I would be like, Oh, mum and dad have had a drink. They're dancing and they're being silly. But sometimes when you're a kid around people drinking, it gets a bit scary and you're like, Oh, they're having an argument. So I feel like this whole town having this red crop as their basis of their entire economy and it feeling like a really, comforting wonderful thing um and bear having to sort of cultivate this crop and then also see that the effects make people talk a little bit too much and discuss secrets they wouldn't normally that was something that i felt uncomfortable with as a kid but i thought if i'm talking about in a magical way with a plant that bursts magically from the earth it just has it's just so much more playful to like explore those feelings 
Yeah. I mean, I think that's so much. You've got so much to the core of why fantasy is what's my it's my favorite genre because it can do so much at the same time. It does all the fun, whimsical, magical stuff whilst also really being a, a brilliant conduit to explore real things. And I think the fantasy books that have stayed with us in our culture, things like Tolkien, they are there because they are they explore those things, but in such an interesting creative way. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, you said that the world came first because I was going to ask you about this. I, I'm I'm in always interested in like world building and whether writers are kind of um, like inwards out or outwards in because I'm very much the same as you. I have a world and then I kind of look for stories within it. But I have fantasy author friends who very much kind of start with the characters and then they like look kind of where do these people exist. So you're obviously the same as me, the kind of the world first. So you've got this town. How did you kind of then create it? Are you like a map drawer, a note maker? How did you actually kind of bring it to life and find the details of it? So yeah, I am a map drawer. And I mean, I think you'd probably be hard pushed to find a fantasy reader that didn't feel a little bit excited to look at a map. And so I've always been that. And so I drew a map for um, Callison, which is in the book, which I'm really, really happy about. And oh, I'm so because I read the proof and it doesn't have the map in it, so I will have to. I will have to make sure I see the finished copy to get the map. Um, yeah, I mean that was a, literally a dream come true. Like to write a book and then to draw the map for it was just. I was scratching so many childhood dream itches right there. Right. Um, but I found that there was. I think I was doing a two pronged approach because really I just got to my laptop and like word vomited. Just like I had, I had, you know, 20, 30 rough chapter outlines that I just sat and considered and then just word vomited all the way through. And then I would be going back to my map for references and then switch the map when I thought like, no, those places are too close to each other and I need them to be near the water. And I also found that, you know how like a climate can literally change the color of someone's skin over time or or maybe the way they speak more clip because it's cold or whatever. I just found that having a really fleshed out world before I put people in it meant that I'd be like, okay, so if this mountain range is here, then, okay, then these people are divided and and that sort of thing. So the way geography influences like wars and and cultures is so interesting and something that I learned a lot more about on my endless Wikipedia searches while I was doing this. Um, But yeah, I, I would basically ping back and forth and, and basically, I think the map had to be tweaked a lot more than I would tweak the writing because it's, it's, it's way harder to tweak a paragraph that might mean you have to tweak 40 going backwards. You oh know? my goodness, yeah, the domino effect of it. Yeah, for sure. So satisfying though. Yeah, when you change, when you think you're changing a really small thing and then you're doing like the next read through and you're just like, oh no, I've made a huge mistake because the knock-on effects of this are just everywhere. (laughs) You've got a character and you're like, oh no, you shouldn't even exist now. Never mind. Oh my goodness. Yes. So well, speaking of characters, so you've got the world, actually, you know what, we don't want to do spoilers. So, um, but can I, I think hopefully it's okay to say, I get the sense that from reading the book, we will see more of the world going I'm so down to talk about this. 100% as soon as I started writing I had a longer get longer game insight longer end game insight and my goal with this one was really just really feel out can I do this and can I make it feel like how fantasy books made me feel when I was younger you know 
where I really want to just pull someone into a world that feels real, like there is magic in there, but I didn't want it to be too much like, you know, you pull out the electric whisk and tap your nose, but only when you've got the six gems, like that's a little bit too much information sometimes. So I wanted to sort of ease in with them, sort of really understandable magic world. And then maybe it'll get crazier as we do, knock on wood, continue the journey <laughs> later on with more novels. Yeah. So when you, so you've got your worlds and now you've got to like populate it. And I think Bear's such an interesting character. And it was interesting to think about Bear having just read Porn of Prophecy as well and Garion. Because I think one thing I really found reading Porn of Prophecy was I was constantly torn between really feeling for him. And like you say, like he doesn't know what's going on. A lot of information is kept from him. And honestly, I hope it's okay to say sometimes finding him a little bit whiny about it. <laughs> He's like sometimes. Um, and it's interesting. I, I think interesting sort of like heroism and chosen ones are interesting because Garin is a very classic he is. chosen one. Whereas Bear is much more of a normal person kind of thrust into an extraordinary circumstance. I'd love to hear a bit about kind of why you wanted to do that rather than the kind of classic chosen one marked for greatness sort of right. trope well i think i think the chosen one thing is is really like fascinating if there's a million other things going on you know that that sort of give it a cause for that but in general i feel like i want people to be able to identify or people and it, and bear is not a, a a to b me at all but i want people that are similar to me to read and feel the sort of very mundane feelings or maybe intense feelings that you feel daily without some sort of grandiose plan from the off or of how things should be just kind of trying your best and honestly going on every day being a learning experience and you've got your own you know even as a kid you've got your own cross to bear it can be that you're like people consider you annoying or it could be that you're really shy or it could just be that you look away that people make fun of and I feel like bear has his own things to carry already he's not just this perfect like Christian religious, like I'm a good boy and I want everything to be okay. You know, he's been through some stuff and I think sometimes he could probably speak up a little bit more. And I think that as a kid, I felt like maybe unable to speak up when I wanted to and not in, and I don't feel that now like at all. I feel in every room with every person, as much as I might feel uncomfortable sometimes to have a quivery lip, like I can speak and I can at least get my point across, you know? So I feel like navigating a world that is both you know, um, divided by class, but also, you know, filled with magic. I wanted it to feel like a real, um, a real introspective boy. He's, he is, he's, he's fascinating. One of the things I'm trying not to, I'm, I'm trying not to do any spoilers because I think he really has to kind of grapple with the idea of how he feels about magic, but as magic as an example of a power and that we all have different powers and it's about how we, kind of choose to use what we have whether that in this world is magic or something else or whether it's something else yeah I think that I mean that comes with so much doesn't it because I was thinking so there's a character on the roof called Maya and she's you know incredibly privileged um and also you know probably quite entitled but my experience like sort of traveling around was I definitely as I got a bit older, like started getting a chip on my shoulder about meeting people that kind of had the world at their feet from day one. Um, but I also found that I met people that had so much privilege. It was so lovely. And like, 
really funny, goofy poshos. And I just thought, they're great to be around. <laughs> and I've got the problem here. I've got a chip on my shoulder for someone who probably doesn't deserve it. But that wealth or that privilege is a power. And you can do whatever you want with it. You can be the most amazing, wealthy person ever. And all you can, and this is my perspective, but all you can serve your own needs. Now, I would say that's bad, but a lot of people are like, no, live your life, do what you want. You don't owe anyone anything. But I've always felt a sense of, I think it's because when you're in a big community, I feel a sense of responsibility towards people in my immediate vicinity and beyond. So mm-hmm. wealth is a power. So is like beauty, in, especially in today's world. Um, you know, whiteness can be a power. Like, I think that magic is a, is a sort of safe place to talk about those things without someone that, that, that is one of those things being immediately like, oh, I hate this book. It's slagging me off, you know? Because yeah. no one, is, as far as I'm aware, is magic. And if they are, can you bloody tell us? Because we need some already. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and that kind of factors in with, with Porn of prof- Prophecy because Garrett, the, Garion at one point expresses a kind of dissatisfaction with what almost I don't want to be living in interesting times. Like we've had hundreds of years of boring history. Why, why do I have to deal with that? And I think that really, those sorts of ideas really do chime obviously at the moment. It really feels like we're living through a bit of history that, you know, has a lot going on and a lot of bad stuff going on. I don't want to read back in the history books and then have to explain to my kids when I'm like really old and gray, oh yeah, it was horrible. You know, what happened was X, Y, Z. I mean, it's one of those things where there's a difference, I suppose, between fear um, and then like terror. Like sometimes it's good to be th- going through fearful things and you, I think you lean into them and it makes you a more well-rounded person. But there's so much going on in the world that is just so overwhelming. I don't know that anyone comes out better. I think a lot of people just come out scarred. So I think, yeah, like with, with magic, it, it's definitely a really safe place for like people that feel strongly about those sort of things to, to sort of exercise those feeling muscles without feeling really down about things. Yeah. And, you know, books, not just fantasy, like I think part of the reason books are so amazing, especially when you're writing for children or young people or teenagers, is that it does let young people test out how they feel about things. And that's a huge reason why books are so vital and I suppose actually that leads on to I did want to ask you about whether you always saw this story as a YA book for that audience did you kind of play with it as different age groups or did it that feel important that you were speaking to that age group um you know I what's funny is I never really um worried about the age of the reader I knew that like the I knew that the style of the book that I wanted to write would could could be if I wrote a certain way a really good children well hopefully good but a really suitable children's book or I could lean into another direction and make it an adult one and I kind of just let my fingers on the laptop go where they went yeah. um, and it ended up YA which I think yeah. I don't know that YA existed when I was that age but I think that's roughly what um, porn of prophecy would be considered maybe. Yeah, because when I was a teenager, when I was reading what is sort of YA, it was all very American, like it was like Sweet Valley High. So kind of there was, but the kind of British YA that exists and is so good, like it's such an amazing part of British publishing, didn't really exist in the same way. Yeah, I think as well, maybe that's, maybe it's not that it didn't exist. I'm sure maybe it did. But it's also that I think people are really conscious now of the YA audience, especially as like the powerhouse of like really loyal like readers that that now is an entire genre on its own. You know, I think it's probably maybe it's reflective of how we felt about 
young people like back in the day it was kids and then adults but teenagers themselves are a relatively new concept but now it's like no teenagers are children transitioning to adults like coping with insane circumstances and huge feelings and literally transforming like actually transforming from one creature into another Um, and I think that maybe like maybe the book world just realized whoa like there's that is a really interesting place for people to be and for people to explore and there's millions of them millions of teenagers (laughs) yeah and I guess you know sometimes I I, I get I'm never quite sure how I feel about the very strictly delineated sort of age groups and genres but I think having having a space in a bookshop or a library that is marked at YA does also mean that you can do something in the YA space for example so Bloodflowers you know it has some pretty like gnarly like there's some pretty violent bits in especially towards the end and I suppose it gives you you know you don't have to worry about like a seven-year-old accidentally stumbling across that but I am interested in how you kind of was that intuitive as well the tone that you took with the levels of violence because obviously I feel like I'm making it sound like it's like (laughs) extreme but just you know it's not a children's book (laughs) right well actually I've got a question I will answer that question obviously okay what as in your opinion in general how do you how would you categorize it loosely around YA because obviously it isn't I don't think it drives very hard into like when when YA gets really hot and heavy and it gets close to adult in that way um but I think it does have like some violence or maybe some little bits of scariness that kids shouldn't be reading in in general I I've not really been asked this yet you know, like, I know that it's roughly YA and I don't really know, like, what what should I say to the next person that asks me, <laughs> <laughs> you know? I mean, I think with age brackets, personally, I think a helpful way to look at them is as it's like a minimum age rather than a window. I'm not a big fan of putting an upper age on of anything and keeping it too restrictive. So, you know, there's a there's a younger age, but that's more just about life experience and not wanting to you know, younger people to be traumatised by coming across stuff. But I think YA, oh, I don't know. But then also this fascinating discussion in terms of like, so like sex and violence are two very different metrics as well, because, you know, people, some people clearly really feel very different about those, you know, books can have a lot of one and none of the other vice versa. And some of them are, and I think, you know what, arguably the boundaries are getting more and more vague perhaps because of like TikTok and like YA obviously has a lot of crossover appeal there's a lot of adults who read YA so I'm afraid I don't have a very helpful response to you other than I guess all we ever do when we write is just follow our intuition and hope that if we've gone astray an editor will tell us yeah <laughs> Um, so I think maybe it's one of those that the, like what we do as humans, obviously, is as we're trying to discuss things or concepts, we we draw a sort of group like, oh, there's the men, there's the women, there's the kids, there's the adults, you know, that's yellow, that's green. But really with yellow and green and all the other things, there's a slight blend in between. And we can call them, you know, put brackets roughly around them and call them YA if we want to. But maybe like all those terms can be sort of reconsidered and YA is like the first the first name that we've given, like this sort of um, coming out of teenage thoughts and into teenage adult thoughts and then beyond, maybe there'll be another term for it. But I think I think YA is sort of like a catch-all that means there might be some violence, but not the sort of violence that's going to sort of rob you of your innocence. You will have seen it in a Hollywood movie, but right. maybe not an R-rated movie. 
Um, and then, like, with sexual things, I think romance can go as deep as it wants and children understand, you know, the king and the queen get married or whatever it is. But I think with sex, like, especially in America and the UK, there's a lot more nerves, I think, around that. So it's fine to chop off someone's head, but, like, oh, no, did they orgasm? We can't say they orgasmed. They just need to close their eyes and be engulfed by warmth and then cut to the next scene. Yeah, I am obsessed with the euphemisms that people use for orgasms in YA fiction like the various ways that people describe it it's um it's fascinating it's a whole thing but you know I I write for children and in my first book the the characters the kids main characters parentage she doesn't know who her dad is um and I have had like there's nothing obviously there's nothing explicit about anything but I have had some emails saying that it's not even appropriate to have that in a children's book. Um, so you're always going to offend somebody, aren't you? Okay, well, okay, there's little bits of that that I've felt from the music world where people feel really comfortable oh, okay. about telling you things. I mean, sometimes I think they've got a point, like, don't say that, my daughter was at that gig. Um, and my argument at the time was not an argument. I was like, sorry, Mrs. <laughs> and now I think, well, I was 18, you know, I was 18. But, and sorry, long story short, cutting back to that, I think that... I, I won't, f- I, I will always apologise. I'll always say like, okay, I'm, you know, I never meant to like hurt you in any way. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, if someone has a problem about some literature that their kid's reading, then they should have read it bef- before them. And so I go, okay, I'm going to make what I'm going to make. It's going to land where it's going to land. And some people will like it and some people think it's a pile of offensive tripe. And that's, you know, that's their business. Yeah. I think that's honestly the only way you can come into sort of making any kind of what music books are of any kind isn't it yeah um actually I did want to ask you speaking of the music side of things do, are there parallels for you between writing songs and writing books or is it a completely different creative process you had a really strong reaction to that <laughs> huge parallels um on the on the physical level of writing huge parallels about like this well it was the first time I've ever done anything really on my own so like when I was writing I was right. always co-writing either with the boys or with like legendary co-writers that are trying to like up our skill points um but huge similarities in um the fun sort of rubik's cube of trying to make it as good and as cool as you want it to be you know and then to like sort of extend further so that core creativity feels exactly the same like actually the start of the book i wrote a little poem that was sort of like a historical poem that is is from the perspective of the free city which is a city outside of where my book is set, talking about this distant town of Calliston. So that was literally me just like writing a song. But all that internal stuff creatively is the same. The book industry is a, like, A for B parallel of the music industry. Oh, really? Both in in its, like, form, where you have sort of, like, um, select group of, like, creatives that are, like, sort of drive mostly creatives. They then sort of have guides or editors um, who will do, you know, stuff around you. And then you have, like, producers or record labels or um, publishing companies and then marketers. And it was so bonkers for me to have been in the music industry. And all it's all the same apart from the offices in one are, like, swanky and glass and chrome. And then in the book industry, it's, like, the back of a Weatherspoons, <laughs> Waterstones. <laughs> It's like the back of a Waterstones and like there's piles of books and everything's wood and everyone's wearing knitwear and got glasses. Yes. (laughs) People in the publishing industry are 
more like like more cliches of book people than I think people realize who aren't in the industry like <laughs> a lot of people are exactly what you expect <laughs> that's because the UK is absolutely freezing and if you read all the time you're probably short-sighted <laughs> but yeah no like the parallels both creatively like right on day one that sort of drive to make it sound right and then like re going over it and be like no I'm, I can say that better but then what really surprised me was just being in meetings and just sort of having flashbacks and thinking, wow, this is like when we met the label. This is when we went and met radio stations. And for me, that would be going and meeting sort of book um, sellers. Mm-hmm. And, and you're like, oh, you have to tell them a little about your book. You see if you have a rapport. But we used to do that in radio stations. And you'd be like, oh, we wrote this song and we didn't write that one. That's the good one. And and then maybe they remember you and go, oh, yeah, I'll let's let's put the book in the let's put the book in the shop or let's put the song on the radio it's really really similar i will say the book world is nice okay. it is i'm glad i'm i'm sort of protectively kind of glad to hear that <laughs> like it's it's lovely oh i'm glad i'm glad you well, you had your kind of first big taste didn't you because you were at yalk so you kind of got to experience a little bit of that side of things yeah i did that was um i was saying to my manager his name's damien i was saying damien like I have the strongest first day nerves, like first day of school feelings ever. Um, I didn't, I didn't know exactly what to expect, but I had a good idea. And then just, it was like my first time sort of publicly talking about something that has just been me and my laptop, and then me and like a really small team at Scholastic. Mm-hmm. So that was really nerve wracking. Um, but what was really like, so you always get distracted, don't you? Or I do by things that make you forget your nerves. And mine was like meeting two other um, authors. And it was mine was uh, Danielle and Esme. I forget their names. Oh, sorry, I suck. But I've read their books now. And they were so nice and so funny. And like being, we were literally backstage before a, um, what do they call it when you talk? The about panels. The panel. Yeah. Backstage before a panel. And I was like, wow, I know this feeling as well. And we were just like, they were saying like nice things. Have you got your pitch ready? And like, don't worry, it's going to be great. Um so yeah, that was great. I really did enjoy that. I'll do that again if they'll have me. Awesome. Although, do you know, um, so Yalk, I, I, well, I haven't been for a couple of years, but it used to be, it's, still, it's part of a bigger con, isn't it? I think it's just London Comic Con. But the author green room used to be part it, there was they weren't separated out so the green room for all the for all the sort of celebs doing signings and people in films and stuff we were in there as well oh. but then an author got in trouble for going and asking for selfies with all the film stars and then now the authors are in that awful little oh. just like a back, basket of twixes <laughs> so i won't name names but that's the yalk law <laughs> as i say speaking of music um, as well I was curious as to whether you write to music and what if you kind of have a soundtrack that fits with Bloodflowers yes yeah, so so I've been going to the library because I found I was really unproductive at home um like I could do it but I also w- was really like not very hard on myself and like no I can take three hours to cook dinner and yeah I'll watch <laughs> some telly and you know so I found it a lot quicker in the library but I like noise and even though libraries are beautiful they're really quiet and so coughs sound loud. So I would, I literally have had, you know, eight hours of music or even if I, if I got bored of music, I'll put on white noise just so I couldn't hear anything. Like my, my Spotify playlist this year is almost all white noise, but I did listen to a lot, I did listen to a lot of music as well. And obviously then I started like trying to find songs that didn't distract me. So I've got a little, I've got a few songs that like I played on a loop over and over again that are just um, like sounds acoustic sort of I don't know if the word would be 
Sp- not spooky, like, uh, let me find my words. I should know. <laughs> I should know words. Well, but I went, because I listen to kind of like ambient soundscapes. I don't know if that's the, like, like for mine, it's like kind of whimsical, like woods and fantasy villages. And you can get all different, like. So actually, yeah, the very, very start when, um, maybe it's like chapter two or three, they go into a tavern uh, in, in Bloodflowers and, Everyone loves a tavern, but I, I just really, I felt like I wasn't capturing what I felt a tavern is. And so I found this one and it was, my, my YouTube search was like, <laughs> like medieval tavern, um, medieval tavern at night or something like that. City tavern, because it needs to be a bit yeah. more bustle. And so I had to keep tweaking it until I found one that was like, great. And then it's not the same looping dog that barks. And you're like, that's the same looping bark. Um, so I did do that for a few chapters, but then I, I settled in the end on, um, maybe I'll find a song, but basically songs that are like acoustically, almost like stuff people do yoga to. Oh. Sort of like Eastern sounding world music. No lyrics at all. How about you? What do you listen to? So just soundscapes like um, wind and water. and Yeah, well, when I'm drafting, I can't listen to anything with lyrics in, but when I'm drafting i use a lot of movie scores um and then i go to like the ambient soundscapes when i'm editing because i need even less distraction right 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 what sort of movie scores well the i've just been i've just finished the first draft of my new series and it's a bit darker than my last one and i actually used the elden ring score so a game soundtrack uh for writing the end bits where they were like it was tense uh so worked myself up into like a kind of state of anxiety to write the final battle do you feel a difference like a strong difference as in the difference between the score and a soundscape or as in when you have like a big swelling orchestra from a movie from elden ring or whatever it is like, do you feel like your writing is different and how do you think it's different? Or do you think it just helps you do this, the same writing you were going to do, but without pauses or whatever? That's such an interesting question. I think it's almost like a sh- like a brain shortcut to accessing a sort of mood. I think, I don't know if you find it, I feel like sometimes a massive barrier I have is almost like getting over myself because I think writing fiction it's so easy to stop and just be like, what <laughs> What am I doing? Like, I'm just making this stuff up. Yes, 100%. <laughs> and then th- those kind of really epic fantasy, it's, it's almost like I can hit a shortcut in my brain and kind of skip that self-doubt, getting over myself and just it puts my brain into the mindset where, yeah, this is fine. This is legit that this is my job. <laughs> yeah. I think maybe we need a soundtrack in general. Like you go into the bank and you're like, I need sort of, I don't know, like um, the Wolf of Wall Street soundtrack in my background now. So I go in and I'm not going to the Barclays desk like, excuse me, can I have some of my my own money, please? I forgot my eye. You know, maybe we just need soundtracks to help us do that in general. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. We've hit on a, we've hit on a winning ticket to Dragon's Den. (laughs) (laughs) Um, awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been, honestly, it's been such a delight to just like get into kind of writing and music and soundscapes and and just why fantasy is so good. It is. Well, thanks loads for having me and please have me again, whatever. I would love to. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Book Wandering. If you enjoyed this episode, then spreading the word would be hugely appreciated by sharing it online, telling your friends or leaving a review where you're listening. You can find me at Case of Books on social media or you can email me at annajamesauthor at gmail.com.
The podcast is produced by Adam Collier with artwork by Hester Kitchen. And this is the last episode of series two, but do go and check out any episodes you've not got to yet from the first two series. And I'll be back in the new year for series three. Until then, happy book wandering. <laughs>